Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut. This is Storied History. And this story is about the Christmas truce. This is the moment in World War I when the Germans and the British stopped fighting for Christmas. It only happened in 1914 and was unique in its scope in all of world history. It was definitely not authorized from the top or from the heads of the countries themselves. This was more a series of unofficial events rather than an actual official break in the fighting, which makes it more fascinating, really. Afterwards, a lot of it was swept under the rug because it was rather embarrassing and it was not in keeping with the extremely aggressive official war stories. One thing you should keep in mind when listening to this story is that it actually happened. This is not a movie or a Christmas special. It is not a myth or some form of propaganda. This is actually real. This is what happened, and this is how it happened. Almost everything that I'm going to tell you, all of the details are taken straight from the letters written by the men that were actually there. And in many cases, I'm just going to read excerpts from those letters. I will try to make it clear when I am actually reading someone else's letters, but keep in mind that if I am giving details... They are not imagined, they were documented. So, first, the context. World War I began in the summer of 1914. I'm not going to address or go into all of the issues that led up to the war, but just a very quick overview. It was very messy, and there were alliances between many nations in Europe. There was a spark in the form of an assassination. Escalating diplomatic and military crises drew the member nations of the various alliances into a conflict that originally had nothing to do with them. A Serbian nationalist assassinated the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. And within a month, Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria were all allied against France, Britain, Russia, Serbia, Belgium, Japan, Italy, China, Greece, and eventually the United States. What's important to remember in this particular context is that the Germans and the British were primarily fighting in France and Belgium. The British had gotten in the war because their allies had gotten into the war, and the same thing with Germany. Germany invaded France, and now they're fighting the British on French soil. So that was the summer of 1914. In the beginning, everyone seemed to be all for it. There were people cheering in the streets of London, Paris, and Berlin. Everyone on both sides assumed that this would be a quick war. Head on out, kick some ass, a few months later you're home by Christmas. It did not work out that way. By the end of August, French casualties alone had numbered about a quarter of a million. 75,000 dead, and another 200,000 wounded. All told, in the end of the first few months of the war, there were at least one million casualties on both sides. One million men killed, wounded, missing, or captured. In Western Europe, in the very beginning of the war, the armies raced across Europe trying to go around one another. They did not succeed. By the end of 1914, the Western Front through France and Belgium went from the English Channel down to the Swiss Alps, 500 miles of trench warfare. Trench warfare was hell on earth, 500 miles of hell. The armies on both sides dug these long ditches, these trenches, all along the front. And our men were in them, waiting for the orders to go over the top and attack the enemy, a close enemy. The trenches were not dug miles apart. In most areas, they were 50 to 100 yards away from one another, sometimes 200 yards, very rarely more than 250 yards away. 
They were waiting for their orders to die, to climb out of the trench and charge into the machine guns of the enemy. But while they were waiting, they were cold and they were wet. Millions of men lived for years in these trenches. Six million died there. At this point, everyone still anticipated that the war was going to be over soon. Two huge armies just sitting and watching one another. The same propaganda that had convinced all of these soldiers on both sides that the war would be over quickly had also inspired them to absolutely hate their enemy. Just some quick examples of propaganda. On the German side, there was a very popular song that ended, We love as one, we hate as one, and we have one foe and one alone. England. The same thing existed for the British. Just a sample poem. Down with the Germans, down with them all. Our army and our navy be sure of their fall. Spare not one of these deceitful spies. Cut out their tongues, pull out their eyes. Down, down with them all. Now, whether or not the actual average person or average soldier on the ground felt this way is up for debate. Some of them absolutely did, but not everyone, which is why this story could happen. In the fall, there was mud, inevitably. It became a torment, an impossible enemy. It varied from six inches to three or four, sometimes even five feet deep. And the misery was shared on both sides. Because they were so close... When they would sneak out on patrols going into no man's land in between the trenches at night, they would hear each other. Uh, another letter. Jimmy went out last night and says he could hear the Huns sloshing around in their trenches and coughing just as much as we do. I expect they are equally as uncomfortable. Behind the front lines there were artillery units, the big guns going constantly over the heads of the infantry on both sides, trying to hit the ones on the other side. So for the average infantryman, on either side, behind him are the massive guns. In front of him, directly in front of him, is no man's land. A hellscape of craters from the artillery, barbed wire, and dead bodies. On the other side of no man's land is the enemy, the infantry. Behind that is the artillery that is trying to hit him. And where he is standing is in these muddy trenches. Another letter. We have to wrap our legs up to our thighs and with sandbags just to survive. The rain pours incessantly from above. From beneath us, the water has risen to just below ground level. The lookout positions have been raised on stilts, and the water is bailed out of the trenches using pots and pans and any container to hand. We huddle down in the dark and the cold and in the water and in the mud. On top of all this, the mad gun battle goes on, unceasingly across this forsaken plain, stretching out as far in front of us and as flat as a tabletop. It is too dangerous even to raise your head above the ground during the day. On the German side, there here is a remarkable letter. We are simply nothing but moles, for we are burrowing trenches so that the Englanders cannot break through here. We have constructed dugouts in which we can lay our weary heads at night and slip into to be out of the way of the shrapnel from the artillery. The next paragraph is in different handwriting. I take the liberty of completing this letter begun by your son and brother, who was unable to finish it himself. The bullet was struck. The hero was aimed only too well by the Englander. It killed him before he could finish. So I have finished the letter for him. So that's the situation. In the summer and in the fall and in the beginning of winter. Until the weather changed. 
When winter finally came, it got very, very cold. In the bleak midwinter, the frosty wind made moan. The earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter, long, long ago. So there they are. They're staring at each other for months, occasionally charging across the empty ground in futile attacks, absolutely miserable on both sides. And weird little things begin to happen, especially where the trenches are close. In some cases, the trenches are 50 yards away or less, 40 the closest around 30. In these places, where they are within shouting distance, they would yell at each other. The Germans yelling, Englander, Englander, and the English yelling back, good old Jerry, things like that. That's a direct quote from a letter. They are all in the situation together, so they must make the best of it. So breakfast truces sprung up. In an actual published letter, it reads... Perhaps it would surprise you to learn that the soldiers in both sides of the trenches have become very pally with each other. The trenches are only 60 yards apart in this particular place, and every morning, about breakfast time, one of the soldiers sticks a board up in the air. As soon as the board goes up, all firing ceases. The men from either side draw down their water and their rations, and when the board comes down, the first unlucky devil who even shows so much as a hand gets a bullet through it. They also begin shouting out news to one another. Neither the British nor the Germans fully trusted the official news, so they would exchange information about what was happening on other parts of the lines. Now remember, this is before radio, so there was no way for these soldiers on the lines to actually get information about what was happening, except for the letters from home, the official reports that they would receive from their superiors, and what the other side would tell them. At night they would sing to one another, literally, sometimes alternate verses of the same tune, first in German, then in English. The Germans came up with their own words to God save the king, and then inevitably an officer on one side or the other would come around and order them to stop singing and fire off a few rounds. In one remarkable incident, in the early parts of the war, during the breakfast truce, and this is a quote, two lads in this regiment got fed up with each other. In broad daylight, they got up on the parapet and fought, hand to hand. After a quarter of an hour, one of them was knocked out. But all the time, the Germans were cheering and firing their rifles in the air rather than at the fighters to encourage the combatants. Who says the Germans aren't sportsmen? Because this is before radio, the only type of music that people had was the singing. And occasionally there would be groups or individuals that had real talent. When that happened, at night, they would begin to sing. The other side would stop firing so that they could enjoy a small concert. This was actually fairly common. All of these things served to humanize the enemy and to somewhat relax their offensive spirit. This was all very much opposed by the commanders and the generals behind the lines. They did not like any of this. Orders were very frequently given out, prohibiting such displays of peace. Really, it was thought to be absolutely necessary to encourage the offensive spirit of the troops. I should note that most of these small things were happening between the Germans and the British simply because they were on French soil. The French took a different view of the Germans being in their land, understandably. 
So here comes December. With the snow freezing and the rain slowing down, this means the mud is greatly lessened. Both sides were celebrating Christmas in their own way. On the British side, Princess Mary had come up with a gift that was funded by the British and sent out to the soldiers on the line. About 400,000 little tin boxes were delivered on Christmas of 1914. By the end of the war in 1920, two and a half million of these little boxes had been given out. They were given with a little bit of tobacco, some cigarettes, a Christmas card, some chocolates, maybe some lemon drops. My family actually has one, personally. It's a little bit of a family heirloom that is still held on to. And on the German side, there was no official gift. Instead, the public was encouraged to send anything that they could. Knitted items, socks, warm hats, gloves, tobacco, of course, food, treats. All of these things were given from the German people to the German soldiers on the front. And more importantly, perhaps most importantly for this story, the Germans were given Christmas trees. Thousands upon thousands of little Christmas trees. Not large. We're not talking about massive ones. Small enough so that the individual units in the trenches could decorate them with a little bit of paper, some candles, that sort of thing. The other important factor was the weather. The frost in the air kept the mud to a minimum. And on clear nights, now it came with the lower temperatures, there was less fog, allowing the individuals on both sides to see one another, but not, perhaps, to fire at one another. At night, things really did calm down. One British officer proudly proclaimed, I have a select little party together, who, led by my own voice, are going to take up a position at our trenches where we are closest to the enemy, about 80 yards. And from 10 p.m. onwards, we are going to give them every conceivable song in harmony, from carols to tipperary. The Germans did likewise, and in late December, a little before Christmas, along the 500 miles of hell, there were small areas where the British and the Germans at night were singing at one another. All along the lines, the weather seemed to be cooperating with the Christmas spirit. The rain ceased. Some descriptions include, and this is just several different ones, last night was a jolly night with bright stars and no rain. It was a beautiful, sunny day, very clear. It was a Christmas card Christmas Eve. It was a very truly beautiful winter's day. The Germans were drinking in their trenches, and at one point during the day, one of the Germans was heard to be shouting out, A Happy Christmas to you, Englishman! And the response called out, Same to you, Fritz, but do not overeat yourself with all the sausages. For the short time being, all of the horrors and discomforts of war seemed to have been forgotten. The Christmas spirit was in the air. As we filed out of our trenches that evening, we exchanged Christmas greetings with those that were there to relieve us and told them how we had become friendly with the Germans over the last few days. Walking along the lines, we realized that this was happening everywhere, all along the trenches, not just in our own little corner. The men were shouting in English and in German to one another, conveying similar sentiments of friendship and goodwill to us all. The high command on both sides was very skeptical and very suspicious, believing that the enemy was contemplating a surprise attack on Christmas and a special vigilance must be held and maintained during that period. But the men in the trenches didn't really believe that. 
on both sides, orders were given, do not fire unless you are fired upon. All day, all during the day of Christmas Eve, there was very little activity, very little fighting. And then, at night, something truly amazing happened. It began with songs. In the full darkness, with the moon shining down, the Germans began singing their Christmas carols. And towards midnight, they began to sing one of the most powerful, the one that they sang the loudest and repeated several times. Stille Nacht, Silent Night. This is a hymn that the British were unfamiliar with at that point. But it was very beautiful, and some of them were able to translate the words. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. One soldier wrote, When our opponents began to sing, we all stopped. This was actually the first time I had ever heard this carol, which was not then so popular in this country as it has been since the war. They finished the carol, and we waited, staring into the darkness, waiting and watching in the silent night. And then they saw it. The lights began to appear along the edges of the German parapets. All of the Christmas trees were being raised out of the trenches, the candles burning and twinkling in the frozen midnight air. As far as the eye could see, to the right and to the left, of this entire sector. The Christmas trees with their little candles were being lit and placed on the edge of no man's land. One man wrote, I shall never forget it. It was one of the highlights of my life. And although I could not understand the words, I thought, what a beautiful song. The little Christmas trees that had been sent to the German lines were beacons of hope and peace. In the backdrop of the Christmas carols, the men waited for the English response. In some places, the English began to sing back. In others, they actually left their trenches. A few in the beginning, not very many. This was not widespread that night. But with both sides singing to one another and not a shot to be heard, whether rifles or artillery, some of the brave stepped out of their trenches, jumped back in, stepped out again. And then again, and again, they went a little farther and farther. They would raise their hands, holding white flags. They would approach one another. On this beautiful moonlit night, the air is clear and there is enough moonlight to see, but perhaps, again, not to fire. They were calling at one another, come over here. No, you come over here. Most of the time, that was ignored, but occasionally not. The officers would leave the trenches, English and German, to meet with their counterparts in the middle. One soldier on the English side wrote, Our sergeant goes out. Their man takes a lot of coaxing but comes at the finish. We find that they have sent two. We can hear them talking quite plain. They exchange cigarettes, and the Germans give cigars, both sides wishing a Merry Christmas. The official agreements, the official reasons for them being out there talking, was the discussion of time to bury the dead, and other nasty necessities of war, but they were very quickly replaced with feelings of goodwill, slight goodwill, and even exchanging of small gifts, the tobacco and the candy. In other places, there were more than just one or two officers. 
Other men began following the officers and the sergeants out of no man's land under the moonlight. One English soldier wrote of his own experience, I had a nickname, Fergie, with the company. After I went out, most soon most of our company, hearing that I had gone and some others had gone out, followed us. They were calling to me, Fergie, Fergie, in the darkness, trying to find us. The Germans, thinking that this was an English greeting, began answering, Fergie, Fergie. So several dozen men around us in the dark, both calling my name, both in English and in German. Well, so what a sight. The little groups of Germans and the British extending almost the entire length down our front. Down in the darkness, we could hear laughter and see lighted matches. A German lighting a Scotsman's cigarette for him, and vice versa, exchanging cigars, cigarettes, and souvenirs. Where they couldn't talk the language, they were made themselves understood by signs. Everyone seemed to be getting along very nicely. Here we were laughing and chatting to the men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. And they were trying to kill us. In many, many places along the line, these small meetings were happening. In others, they were simply calling out to each other. English soldiers, English soldiers, happy Christmas. Where, where are your Christmas trees? We were embarrassed by this sudden showing of comradeship. And as a lasting joke against it, let it be said that the order was given to stand to arms, but we did not fire. The battalion on a right, the Royal Irish Rifles, with their national sense of humor, answered the enemy's salutations with songs and jokes, and they made appointments for Christmas Day to meet and to talk on the morrow. We felt small and subdued, and spent the remainder of Christmas Eve all night watching the lights flicker and fade on the little Christmas trees in the German trenches, hearing the songs and the voices grow fainter and fainter and eventually quiet. I would not have missed it for the world. The timer was the candles. As the candles in the Christmas trees burned out, some internal clock of the soldiers called them back to their trenches, and they went. Darkness and silence reigned over the entire line of the trenches, through France and through Belgium. But everywhere was the feeling of anticipation, of what the next day would bring, and what would happen on Christmas Day. All right, I'm going to stop there. On the next episode, I will be talking about Christmas Day, what happened there, and what happened after. But that comes next. This has been Storied History with Charles Chestnut. You can find me wherever you get your podcasts or at storied, S-T-O-R-I-E-D, history.com. Also on storiedhistory.com, I do have a page with pictures of this truce. Some drawings, some actual photographs of what happened there, and including at least one with the actual little Christmas trees on the German side. Uh, if you'd like to see them, they are at storiedhistory.com. Uh, that and some links to the primary source, the book, uh, that if you'd like to read further or know more. I've also got a Twitch channel, which is distinctly less formal, but I think a little, no less fun. If you'd like this story, I do have others, and I will continue to add to them. So subscribe to the podcast, find me on Twitch, give me a good rating. All of these things matter a great deal when you're starting something new, which I am. Thank you for listening, and I will go and find the next story. 
I'd like to give credit to the singers of Silent Night. Uh, that was the U.S. Army Chorus, arranged by Colonel Loboda and Major Milburn. It, because it is the work of a uh, U.S. Army soldier uh, as part of their official duties, it is not subject to copyright. It is, act, in fact, in the uh, work of the U.S. federal government and is in the public domain in the United States, which is why I used it. I really wanted to find a, one of a German version, and I simply could not do so. Uh, this one works very well, so I chose to use it. And again, it is part of the public domain. Uh, it is not subject to uh, copyright. The license is free in the United States. So there you have it. Thank you, U.S. Army Corps.